It is a privilege and an honor to be a member of this congregation and stand before you and bring forth the Word of God for us. By way of introduction, I would have many of you recall the year 1983. I say many in that though we were all much younger, many of you were making the transition perhaps from school to college, from university to the world of work. Some of you were already engaged in raising your young families, and I realized that with an audience this diverse that many of you were not yet around. For the most part, 1983 was a most uneventful year, but there was one event that did capture the attention of our nation. It was the death of a 32-year-old female singer. And to this day, I still can't think of anyone who has quite the soothing voice of one Miss Karen Carpenter. Many of you may remember what took place. I can still remember seeing the banner headline, Karen Carpenter dies of anorexia nervosa. I remember questioning those two words, wondering what they were as a young man. And as a result of her death, anorexia became common knowledge, especially in a society that prides itself on vanity and aesthetics. Anorexia, as many of you know, is a distorted self-image. It is an undue concern about body shape and about physique. And it manifests itself in starving the body, though the body is terribly hungry. Really, it's a refusal to believe the truth of what a person sees. A person looks in the mirror and the evidence is before them and they refuse to believe it. Oftentimes they refuse to believe the words of encouragement from family and friends about what's happening. And though their bodies are emaciated, they continue to deprive themselves of nourishment they so vitally need and often cases grow very sick, and in some cases, even die. And though anorexia is more prominent among women, it affects men just the same. I know, I speak from personal experience as a man who has battled anorexia, but not in the way that you're thinking. It doesn't manifest itself in the refusal to eat, but I will tell you that it manifests itself in being discontent and dissatisfied. I have seen the activity of God. I have spent time with some of you in this congregation, and I have witnessed what God has done in your lives. I have heard the stories of your testimonies and how God has moved you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, and I marvel at God's great grace in His lives in your lives and how He's dealt kindly with you. I marvel at God's goodness to me through my family members. My soul has often been refreshed by the proclamation of God's word. And I love the participation that the Lord allows me to have in the Lord's table on those Sunday mornings when we commemorate his death and resurrection. And yet there are times where I choose to disbelieve. And as a result, I become dissatisfied and discontent. And there are times where I would have an undue concern for myself. And I think I deserve better. And I'm indicted by the words of the Apostle Paul. 
As he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, I have thought of myself more highly than I ought to think. I know many of you in here know exactly what I'm talking about. This morning, I want us to take a look at a, at a people that were greatly dissatisfied. They had an undue concern about themselves. They were a people that was spiritually anorexic, if you will. They refused to believe the truth of what they saw and experienced. And we're going to cite in on a few individuals. Today, we're going to learn, and I trust be greatly encouraged from the book of Numbers. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking it may be a long time since you have opened up the book of Numbers. Numbers is, is not exactly the go-to book for comfort and counsel. You think of the Psalms or perhaps the letters written from the Apostle John, but not necessarily Numbers, and I understand that. I mean, the title itself is Numbers. You open up the book and you read chapters 1 and chapters 2, and you're reading a bunch of Numbers, and you think, you know, I'm going to go ahead and move on and move on to Deuteronomy. And so I understand that, but let me encourage you this morning. Many of you here, if not most of you, and many of you young ones here are very, very familiar with the book of Numbers. You know the book quite well. Let me prove my point. See if this sounds familiar to you. The people complaining about manna in the wilderness. Who will give us meat to eat? And the response, I'm always wondering what the response may have been like as they heard it from Moses. Listen to the response from Moses. The Lord will give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. The complaining of Miriam and Aaron as they come to Moses because of his marriage they actually ask him, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the result, Miriam stricken with leprosy. And Moses intercedes on behalf of her. The story of the 12 spies. They go in to the land as instructed by God. And 10 come back with a cowardly report. As they commiserate with each other, there's no way we can go in and get the land. Did you not see the giants? And we have the faithfulness of Joshua and Caleb. Do you remember those stories? Numbers. How about Moses striking the rock? He was clearly commanded to speak to the rocks so that water would come forth. But he struck the rock. Listen to the words as written by Moses. Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. A warning to us. The Lord God will not tolerate even the slightest of deviations from his most holy word. And this was Moses. So Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. The story of the bronze serpent. Look and live. Jesus Christ himself makes reference to the bronze serpent in the Gospel of John, where we'll be shortly with Pastor Adam in the Gospel of John chapter 3 as Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus about being born again. Balak and Balaam. 
talking donkey and a prophet for hire. And then the zeal of Phinehas, who with his spear pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, for their defiance, their open defiance. I trust that what I've just shared with you is familiar to many of you. All of these stories have come from the book of Numbers. I'm hopeful that Numbers will be good company to you in the future and that you'll find rich devotion as you look at God's glory and his kindness as how he deals with his people and his covenant promises and blessings to his people. But I've kept out one significant event. And I know that you know this one also. It's found in Numbers chapter 16 where we'll spend most of our time this morning. And again, this is familiar to you. We know it is the rebellion of Korah. But please do not let the familiarity of these stories somehow move you away from the depth. I fear that oftentimes we are comfortable with God's holy word but we are not too far from responding like the family of Jesus in Matthew 13. He could do no miracle there because of their their unbelief, because he went back to his own hometown. May this not be the case for us. Let me pray for us to that end this morning. Dear Father, we come before you this morning, and I pray that this morning we would be undistracted in our devotion to you, as you've called us this morning to worship your Son, your glorious King, our glorious King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your rich mercies and kindness that you allow us still to gather together. I pray that this time would be honoring to you and that we would be those who, when we approach your word, would approach it with great caution and great care, great care and great reverence. I pray this all in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you the brief summary of the narrative this morning. Korah along with 250 leaders of Israel, rebel against Moses and Aaron. Ultimately, this rebellion is against God himself. God, in his glorious judgment, causes the earth to open up and swallow Korah and his companions. And then fire consumes the 250 men offering incense who align themselves with Korah. The narrative is very easy to follow, but I want us to understand the depth of what's going on here. So what I want to do this morning is I want to start first by giving you the historical background, because I think this will be helpful to you and lend itself to a better understanding of what took place in Numbers chapter 16. Korah is the first cousin of Moses. We know this from the account of Exodus chapter 6. Blood relation to Moses. Korah is also from the tribe of Levi. Now, I know that you have heard of the Levites before. They have a significant role among the tribes of Israel. They have numerous and profound responsibilities. They are the preservers of God's law. They are the guardians, and they are responsible for the spiritual well-being of Israel. In other words, we would say they're the temple guard. But because there was no temple then, we were going to call them the tabernacle guard. Why the Levites? We have 12 tribes. Why did God choose one tribe specifically to function as his priests and intermediaries? Well, I can just say to you, well, this is what God does. He's sovereign, and that is true. God can choose whomever he desires. But let me give you a a reason why the Levites were chosen. This is what I believe to be true. I know that you may have your fingers in number chapter 16, but if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, I want to read this portion for you to help you understand why the Levites were chosen. Do you remember the sin of the golden calf when Moses was on Mount Sinai? And then he came down 
and the people were worshiping and they were playing in their open immorality. Moses comes down, and this is where the narrative picks up. Exodus chapter 32, starting at verse 25. I'm reading from verses 25 to 28. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. This is why the Levites, I believe, were set apart. They were the ones who immediately rose up in defense of God's name. I'm not implying that the Levites were not involved in the sin of the golden calf. What I am saying is that they were the ones, from the account that we have, that rose up as Moses, as Moses called them out. So they were set apart for God's divine purposes. I also want us to keep in mind what's happening in the wilderness. Oftentimes, you may see a picture of the tabernacle and tribes around, and what you may have is a picture of, a picture of canopies and a, and a court around. On this one, work with me, if you will. I trust that most of you have been down the street behind me to the Master's College Gymnasium. If you haven't, I want you to picture a basketball court. The tabernacle itself is, is about the size of the basketball court, just a bit longer than the basketball court. It's not that big, but there's a court. Basketball court, a little bit longer. Master's College Gymnasium, we bring the bleachers out, we have the walls, so we have four sides surrounding the gymnasium. The Levites are in the bleachers. The Levites are on the walls. The Levites are protecting the tabernacle court. We're talking about an area with three million people, 12 square miles. What that means is that some of these tribes may be as far out as Railroad Avenue or Sierra Highway in Placerita. The Levites have a front row seat. They are there. The tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, is central to Israel. And the Levites are right there. Anybody passes them, they pass them on pain of death. No one is to come near. So the Levites are there. And Korah himself, along with the Kohathites, are involved with the most holy things, the most holy utensils. Not, no one else can touch them except for Korah and his family. It's a great privilege that God has conferred to Korah and the Levites. I would have us consider this morning the privilege and blessings that God has given to us and the, re the relationship that we have with the God of the universe through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to the Holy of Holies because of our great intercessor and our great priest and our great king and prophet, we have been blessed so that we would consider that in light of this narrative. Now to the narrative. Follow as I read Numbers chapter 16, starting at verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. 
They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? I want you to consider what Korah has just done. Consider who Korah is, the privileges and the blessings of what he's been given And consider what Korah's just done. That is observation number one. This is a foolish reprimand. See, Korah has an undue concern for himself. Notice his actions. He has rallied men with him. But not just ordinary men. He's rallied 250 leaders, men of renown or chiefs of Israel. And he approaches Moses with three other men. You know what this means? It means Korah has influence. Korah is a charismatic leader may even be winsome. This doesn't just happen overnight. But Korah was able to rally other leadership with him to go and speak against Moses. Tells us something about those who are rebellious or complainers. Complainers and whiners, they, they love company. It gives them a sense of security and confidence. I think about the ten spies who came back with their cowardly report. They probably said they probably talked to each other the same way. We all saw the same thing. Maybe Joshua and Caleb didn't see it, but we all saw it. I saw it. Yeah, you saw it. You saw it. Yeah, we can't go in there. And they're all talking to each other, and now they're affirmed in what they believe. And they're not faithful to the Lord. And so Korah reprimands Moses. And there is some truth to what he's saying. The congregation is holy. They've all been set apart and called out by God. But it's the motive that Moses is discerning about. See, Korah thinks he deserves more. And he's foolish for not recognizing the truth of what he has been given. He has seen, as the others have seen, he has seen walls of water. We read about this this morning, Psalm 136. He has seen walls of water. He has tasted bread from heaven. He has been given special privileges. But this is not enough. Korah has a front row seat to all that goes on in the tabernacle. Let me give you a paraphrase. Korah has gone to Moses, and he says, Moses, I want a backstage pass. I want to be back there with you, doing what you do. I, I, I want to help. I mean, it's really what I want. I want to help you. But let me come backstage. You're doing too much. That's really what he's saying. Korah has a wrong approach. He's leveling an accusation against Moses. He has a problem with his leadership. Ultimately, he has a problem with who who God has anointed and who God has appointed as a leader. There are times when as a member of God's congregation, I'm speaking to us in this room, to you here at Plas Rita Bible Church. There are times when as a member of this congregation, you may be inclined to have a different opinion of what goes on here. You may disagree with the leadership. You may have a concern or a, a preference of the way you think things need to be done or the way things need to be handled. You may even have a concern with somebody else in the congregation. When it comes to approaching leadership, let me give you a prescription. It needs to be done prayerfully, Thoughtfully and carefully. My thought 
And my strong recommendation is that you wait one, maybe two years. I know, you're thinking, what? Patience, grace. Those problems tend to get worked out. And as you pray for your leadership and you pray for your own heart, things change. And oftentimes the issues that we think are 911 issues are not really that important. If it comes to another member of the congregation and you have a concern or some thoughts, things you want to share, you don't talk to anybody else. You approach a leader, you don't talk to anybody else. You approach them by yourself if it comes to that. I would just say that we have very clearly from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7 that we are to treat others the way we want to be treated. And we forget that in our culture. So there is a way to approach leadership. And we need to trust the Lord for those men whom he has appointed over us. Maybe if Korah would have approached Moses by himself with humility, perhaps we wouldn't have an account. But we do. And this is for God's glory and for our good. This isn't what Korah did. Korah really embodies the essence of Proverbs 18. Listen, Proverbs 18, I, I trust many of you have read this before. Proverbs 18, 1 and 2 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. This is Korah. It is a foolish reprimand. Follow as I read verses 4 through 10. This is observation number 2. I want you to notice the response. This is a faithful response from Moses. Starting at verse 4, chapter 11. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he, whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censors for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? Are you seeking for the priesthood also? Notice, a faithful response. Moses is not moved by Korah and all his company. He's not intimidated by all his company. He doesn't confer with his brother Aaron. He doesn't second guess. Moses is a leader. He knows that God has called him to a specific task. Moses doesn't consult with flesh and blood. What does Moses do? He falls on his face and he seeks God. Fear seeks flesh and blood. A holy reverence goes to God first. Moses knows who he is and what God has called him to. He's a very perceptive leader. He can see right through Korah. I fear that our passive, effeminate culture would have us men think that we have to have a discussion about everything. We have to establish a committee to explore the issue. 
We need to be united. Perhaps we can find a way to bridge the gap. And you know what? We can agree to disagree. Moses will have none of it. As I said, Moses is a leader. And he can see right through him. He doesn't compromise the truth. Very perceptive. Oh, that God would give us men like this in the church today. I think of Moses. I think of a man like Mordecai who stood alone because he said he was a Jew. I think of the prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings 22 who stood alone against 400 prophets. I know that we love these stories. Let me give you the paraphrase. As Moses speaking with Korah, this is not about a backstage pass, Korah. This is about you. You want to be on stage. This isn't about noble, holy desires. This is about your position and your power. That's what this is about. The bottom line is that Korah is not satisfied. He has forgotten everything that he's been given. And his dissatisfaction has infected those around him. Listen to the perversity Verse 13, the perverse tongues of Dathan and Abiram. Listen to this. Verse 13, follow as I read. Exodus chapter 16. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness? But would you lord it, lord it over us also? You know what this is? This is actually spitting in the face of God. Did you hear what they said? You brought us out of the land of Egypt, a land flowing with milk and honey. Did you catch that? What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves. Their firstborn was to be put to death if it was a male. They were gathering straw and making bricks. Think about that. Man, I think about this sometimes in Egypt. So what was your day like? What'd you do? Gathered straw and made bricks. Are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Gathering straw and making bricks. I'm a slave. I'm talking about being fulfilled. Our culture, see, speaks to us that way. We want to be fulfilled. We forget that we're slaves of Christ. Perversity. They want to go back to Egypt. This is how bad the infection is spread. And this is complete and total rebellion. May we, not, may we not be like those who at times go back to our sin. Let me give you the third observation. This is the fatal result. Look ahead with me to verses 31 through 35. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. I cannot adequately describe this to you. This is not the normal paradigm for death. We know of men, the exception being translated directly into the presence of the Lord, but we have no account in the scriptures, except for this one, of anyone ever entering into death alive. Horrific. 
This is not about falling through the cracks. This is about God's glory and His judgment about those who would rebel against Him. Korah and his immediate company went down alive to Sheol. And the next day, and then immediately fire consumed the 250 men of renown. And the next day, 14,700 people died because of their continual complaining. Our God is a consuming fire. This is what the writer of Hebrew writes. We must not forget this. What was the cause of their death? Who was the cause of their death? God. Why? Because they were discontent. Because they had an undue concern for themselves. This is really the theme of the book of Numbers. It's Mark Dever writes, it's the culmination, it's the culmination of human discontent. So why this message? Class Reader Bible Church, January 15th. And what can we learn? Let me just say this by qualification. I don't believe anybody here in this congregation is fomenting rebellion. Yeah. No one is, is going to, no one is gathering people to speak against the leadership. I don't believe that. This is a church that is unified. As I've heard the testimony of the leadership here, this, this is a church where people are together. I know this church has been through a lot and it's brought people together. But why this message? I believe many in the church today are anorexic. Many have an undue concern for themselves. They, perhaps you, are dissatisfied. And I know because of our fallen sin nature, it is easy to be continually dissatisfied. I would remind us that we are spiritual beings and that we have souls. And because we are spiritual beings, the only thing that can satisfy us is an infinite spirit, spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, many of us are dissatisfied. The word frustration comes to mind. I know it's a word, unfortunately, that has become, become common in our vocabulary. It's something that we just say to each other. Yeah, I got frustrated the other day. Normal part of our vocabulary. You know what frustration is? It's sin. It is sin, but we've elevated it to a respectable sin to steal the title of a book. You ever feel frustrated? I ask this because this is so often the seed of rebellion against God in our minds. Really, frustrations, it's about an undue concern for ourselves. That's really what it is. Korah's dissatisfaction and discontent and his rebellion was ultimately against God. Moses writes about this in verse 11. He says, therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. When we have a complaint, when we murmur, when we covet, really, it's ultimately against God. We, we have words now that we use in our language, and we even teach this to our children at times. How about the, that, I say this in quotes, if only. You ever think about that? If only. How about this one? I wish. Sounds so benign. I wish it would have gone that way. Or if I could have a wish, it would be this. Interesting, the Bible says nothing about wishes. But the Bible does talk about mercy and justice and humility and trembling. But yet, within all of us, there's a 
covetous, idolatrous nature. And we want to be exalted. And when we complain, when we murmur, when we are dissatisfied, perhaps in our circumstances. And I understand we would desire circumstances to be different. Perhaps we would want our offspring, our children, our sons and daughters to respond differently to us. Perhaps we would desire a marriage that looks a certain way or relationships with peers that look a certain way. I understand that. It's the response, though. It's how we think through that. That's the concern that we need to have for our souls. Of course, we want things to be well. However, there are times where we want things to be so well, and if they're not well, then we're not happy. What we're really doing is we're questioning the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving king of creation, and we're saying that, God, what you've done is not good, and we forget. So I would just say that this morning's message, the takeaway is not don't complain. That's not what this is about this morning. I don't have a strategy for you or several points to say, hey, this is how you cannot complain. This isn't about complaining or not complaining. But I would tell you that I would appeal to your minds that all of us, we need to grow in our understanding of God's righteous wrath and judgment against those who would complain against him, which includes us. We forget who God is and we forget where we've come from. Listen to the words of Jeremiah This may seem obscure, but this is from the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah writes in chapter 3, verse 39. Listen to this. This is so good. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? And I think of Paul's writing in Philippians 2 as Paul is caught up with the incarnation of Christ. Again, everything that we do in our lives is central to the glorious Christ. And Paul writes, So then, do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. Not just don't complain so you can be nice because we are children of God. This is about God's glory being on display. The Israelites are God's beloved children. They were God's beloved children. The church, we are the church. We are God's beloved children. I don't believe the earth is going, to open us, is going to open up and swallow us up for complaining. But we have to remember that our complaining and our murmuring, which we do so easily, is an affront to a holy God. I say that oftentimes we are guilty of treason against the holy king, but we think, we think nothing of it. Again, it starts in our minds. Let me give us some closing thoughts. First, for those of you who are here this morning, but you are not a Christian, you are not a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to give you some words of warning. Maybe you're listening to this message this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not... This doesn't apply to me. I'm not a complainer. I'm not like Korah. I wouldn't level an accusation against anyone. You may be thinking to yourself, no, I'm okay. I mean, it's, it's fine. Compared to some others, I'm okay. I would say this, that you're not okay and that you're not a Christian. And that is not the way a Christian thinks. Christ did not come for those who were okay. Christ came for those who were sick. 
and many of us in here were sick. I would say that oftentimes the church resembles a hospital, but we have a great physician. So I'd ask you carefully to consider the state of your soul. If that's what you're gauging your soul on, that you're okay, I would implore you this morning to think carefully about who you are and examine yourself and to be reconciled to God. And this can only be accomplished by the work of another. And if that is the condition that you're in this morning, I would encourage you to talk to somebody or to talk to somebody that you trust and go to them and just talk with them. That's what we're about this morning, about sharing the truth of Christ and his promises and God's covenant love for his people. Secondly, to those of you who are redeemed and you're in this congregation and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me say this. It is enough. God has called us out of a dark and decaying world. God has moved us into his kingdom. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And he's blessed us with heavenly riches. It is enough. It truly is enough. I know that circumstances can be hard. And I will say this. I know that you will fail. I know that we will sin. But may our sin drive us to Christ. The tendency is is that as we do battle in our consciences, we want to run away. But may our sin drive us to the Savior. There's forgiveness with him that he may be feared. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We submit to God. We resist the devil and he will flee because our conscience at times torments us. But we resist and we draw near to God. And you know what James says? He will draw near to us. I know that circumstances can be hard for some of you in here. There's challenges that you're facing. Perhaps there's children, relationships that are not the way you want. You have tried really to to have peace with those around you and it's just not working. Father, mother, brother, sister, perhaps you're trying to do things a certain way with your family members. May I submit this to you. God is merciful. Has God given you a child or a relationship that is not going the way you want? That is God's mercy because perhaps he's given you that child to draw you closer to him. And so praise God. Nobody drinks from stagnant water. We drink from water that is flowing because it's purified. May we not become stagnant as believers and say it's all well. Yes, it's all well with our souls, but there are challenges that we face, but that is God's mercy. May that mercy, may we recognize God's mercy and flee to Christ. That's why we so desperately need each other. We come together and we speak to each other these things and we talk about the mercy of Christ and we talk about his goodness and we talk about eternity and our hearts are are refreshed as we spend time with each other. And we learn about our shepherd king who has ransomed us with his blood. In the midst of our sin, because we are going to sin. In the midst of our challenges, we put our arms around each other. And we say, you know what? It's going to be well. And it's true. It's going to be well. I know that we so often forget. But we need to remember there's one who intercedes for us. And has given himself for us. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Truly we of all people can say yes. It is enough. The lines have fallen to me. 
in pleasant places. <clears throat> I pray for us as a church, Placerita Bible Church, that we would be a church that is made up of individuals that refresh each other's hearts in Christ. That as we come together, we are thoughtful and tender and gentle. We have souls. May we deal gently with each other. We are sinners saved by grace. And these are things that we need to remember and to talk to each other about. Let's our hearts move away and towards our unbelief. So we do this day after day, as long as it's still called today. Let me conclude our time this morning with this benediction that comes from the book of Numbers. I'll be reading from Numbers chapter 6. This is where the benediction comes from. And then I'll pray for us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Yes, amen indeed. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, you who reign above the angelic realm, cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And Father, we long to say this, and yet we confess to you that so oftentimes we are quick to forget, and we are like an unruly little child. We are not far from our former brothers and sisters in the wilderness, and that we would complain just about anything, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that our consciences would smite us at the first thought of sin, that we realize that a complaint in your sight is odious to you. And yet you continue to extend your loving arms to us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And so, Father, we come to you asking for your mercy and forgiveness, and yet we come to you also thanking you for your mercy and compassion that you've covered us by the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. And I, I pray that this would be what our lives are about, is about exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would make much of him in our lives to one another, and that we would exalt the King of creation. So, Father, I pray that in that moment of a complaint, our thoughts would be rendered back to the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would not be treasonous in our minds or disloyal to you. Father, I thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for Lord's Day worship. We thank you for what you're doing in the lives of your people. May your holy name be exalted and praised. I pray this all in the name of your great Son, our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ.